Our reading this morning of Scripture comes to us from Galatians uh, chapter 3 and 4. I'll begin in verse 23 of Galatians uh, chapter 3. Of course, uh, Paul here teaches us that and why uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised seed, had to be born of a woman and born under the law. This is God's word for us. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Thus far the reading, God's holy word. Uh, We'll now recite our catechism lesson, Lord's Day 14. We are working our way through the deliverance section of the catechism in the teaching of the gospel in the Apostles' Creed. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things, except for sin. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator. And in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Well, in our catechism lesson today, uh, through uh, the Apostles' Creed, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ is concretely presented uh, before us. Now, the catechism has already addressed and taught uh, the doctrine of a mediator. Already at the introduction of this section, in questions and 16 and 17, it taught why our deliverer must be a God-man. So question 16, to refresh our memories, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. 
but a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Here, uh, this gospel truth is explained to us from scripture and from our creed uh, in terms of the historical events of the conception and birth of our Lord. So we take an abstract doctrine already presented, a rationale, and here put literally flesh and blood on it. So the creed has already taught us the deity of the Son. We heard this last week. He is the only begotten Son, our Lord, eternally begotten of the Father. And now it teaches us the humanity of Christ in these lines, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The Catechism is first very clear that this incarnation does not take away from the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus was conceived within a woman and born naturally of a woman doesn't negate or deny his divinity. Again, that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature. So we use the language in the tradition as we wrestle with this mystery. No, none of us can wrap our heads around the idea of a God-man, fully comprehending that fact. But we affirm this witness of Scripture and the Gospel that the Son, the eternal Son of God, assumed a human nature. And it was united to His person. So we don't have two persons. We don't have two gods. We don't have a change in the deity of God. Jesus takes his human nature from his mother. It isn't, uh, doesn't drop down from the heavens. It isn't created entirely de novo. Um, and yet both Matthew and Luke testify that he does not have a human father. He does not have a human father. He's rather conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary, so she is his mother, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, so there was no sexual union, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Later, Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This clearly is a supernatural event. Without the natural assistance of the father, uh, the woman, the mother, Mary, the virgin, has conceived in her womb new life. Luke one thirty five. Uh, expresses the same thing, but in a different way, which um, J. Gresham Machen, who about a hundred years ago was defending uh, the doctrine of the virgin birth in the rise of, of modernism in the church. Modernism said, oh, the virgin birth is just a myth. It's some way that the church took, some language that the church took to herself in subsequent centuries to, uh, to explain why Jesus was special. And so they came up with this idea of a virgin birth. And Machen argued uh, very scientifically and compellingly and historically against that. And one of the things he said is, we have not only the witness of Scripture, but we have the witness of two different Scriptures. 
Matthew and Luke differ. It's not a common tradition. And then he said about these biblical texts, he said both, uh, especially the opening of Luke, but both Matthew and Luke are written in such a way as to be very much of the character of Palestinian authorship. In other words, they come from the region where Jesus was born. They weren't invented a hundred years later in the, in the milieu of Greek or philosophical thought. But rather, they very much have Old Testament style. Indeed, they could have and were probably articulated first in Aramaic or Hebrew type thought patterns. And so we turn to Luke. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here we have, again, independent witness from likely that very first century. The age of these texts is, uh, is not seriously in doubt. And the miracle here is threefold. First, as I've already said, Jesus is conceived without the natural participation of a human father. Second, as Luke indicates, the Spirit is the one who works both to unite the two natures of Christ in a personal union. So... It is miraculous that Mary has a son without a father. It is furthermore miraculous that this son of Mary, uh, this human nature, becomes personally united to the eternal, only begotten Son of God. And the third miracle, as it were, is that the Spirit also works to keep uh, the human nature of Jesus free from sin. Therefore, as Luke records, the angel saying, the child will be called holy because he is worked by the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He will be holy. Now, it is not the case that we must believe or intuit that the virgin is sinless. And some in the history of church have contended this. Um, or some have contended maybe original sin flows from the father to uh, the child in the conception of the child. And we don't need to conclude that either. I think scripture and everything in God's word points us to the idea that all men and women alike are under sin. And we both contribute in the generation of sin in our offspring. Rather, the spirit sanctifies the human nature he takes from the virgin. The author of our catechism, Ursinus, says, The Holy Ghost knows best how to distinguish and separate sin from the nature of man. For sin is not from the nature of man, but was added to it from the devil. So you see, there's a key theological point there. It's not essentially human to be sinful. Remember, sin uh, adheres to us because of the fall. We were created sinless. And so the Holy Ghost works a holy human nature. All other members of the human race, we know, were conceived in sin. Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We have the witness of other texts of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2. That he is like his brothers in all things except for sin. He had to be made like his brothers, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And Philippians 2. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus alone in all of human history, has a sinless uh, humanity, at least since the fall, but is nonetheless a true humanity. He is therefore the fulfillment 
as our catechism points out, of the promise that a seed of a woman, a seed of Abraham and a seed of David uh, would be born as a deliverer. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 begins, The book of the genealogy, the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the true son of those two covenant fathers. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 3. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets concerning his son, God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. It's an important part of the gospel, which our catechism highlights here. Our creed highlights that Jesus was born a son of David, descended according to the flesh. This was as had been promised, Second Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. The promised Messiah was to be an heir, a son of David. And we read our call to worship this morning, Psalm 132. The Lord swore to David, referring to 2 Samuel 7, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now, not only is it imperative, of course, that the Lord fulfills his promises, uh, but the apostle Paul uh, unpacks for us why it is that Christ must have a human nature. Again, the catechism has already dressed this uh, somewhat, but I think it's important for us to realize that, that we are often tempted in the history of the Christian church to overlook the importance of Christ's deity, uh, or rather the importance of Christ's humanity, his true humanity. We often say, right, God saved me from my sins. It's true that God man did. Uh, we often think of Jesus in his divine power. But we don't do a good job of remembering how his humanity not only is necessary for our salvation, but comforts and benefits us. Paul, again, unpacks this idea in sort of this Christ as the second Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, Romans 5.12, so death spread to all men. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And then Paul says, interestingly enough, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Who? Who is this one? It is Christ, of course. Adam was a type of Christ in this respect. That even as his one sin caused all of humanity to die, he was a federal head he was in a representative relationship over the race. So Christ's one act of righteousness brought life to all. And he says that explicitly later in chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul is teaching here the imputation of Christ's righteousness, his obedience to us. 1 Corinthians 15 testifies to the same thing. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Our resurrection, our victory over death comes by a man. A God man. But he needed humanity to save us. He needed to be fully man. 
And as the ancient church wrestled with this doctrine, this mystery, and tried to remove the mystery from it, well, maybe he just had a human body and a divine soul. Or as modernity in, in the person of people like Friedrich Schleiermacher said, you know, maybe he was a human, but he had a divine consciousness of God. That's what makes him divine. Or some other blending of different parts and pieces. The church comes back again and again and again. He needed to be fully human, accepting sin to save us from our sins. The New Testament views the true humanity of Christ as fundamental to the gospel. And the Catechism points to the reason for that in its two benefits. Again, just to point out, the Catechism doesn't rest content to memorize Christian doctrine. The Catechism doesn't rest content that believers could rattle off the facts of their faith. The Catechism desires that our faith rests in Christ, trusts in Christ. And so the Catechism wants us to understand our faith. And the first benefit is his mediation. Jesus Christ stands between God and man, even as Moses stood between the people and Mount Sinai as they cried out in fear for someone else to talk to God on their behalf. Again, the epistle to the Hebrews is really quite abundant in this language. We have a great high priest, chapter 4, who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. You see, our faith and the firmness of our faith is tied to our mediator, our high priest. For, I'm going to give the reason, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What an amazing verse. He's a sympathetic Savior. Let us then, with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The doctrine of the mediation of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the two natures, gives us boldness, gives us confidence. God wants to hear from us, and he will be merciful when he hears from us. We know that he has mercy and grace for us. Hebrews 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Again, he can go on our behalf because he is one of us. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of hope. And we see here that we have him as our hope. And Hebrews 7. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And here, Hebrews teaches the innocence, the sinlessness of Christ. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Again, by the miracle of the Holy Spirit and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and for those of the people. Since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness 
But the word of the oath, which came later, appoints a son made perfect forever. He's made perfect, as chapter 2 told us, as a redeemer, because he took on human flesh to die for us. One of the mysteries here is that a perfect son of God could have something added to him without changing him. And yet scripture and the gospel forces us to that mystery. The eternal son of God couldn't save fallen humanity without a human nature. He had to assume this. And uh, the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 26, just to cross-reference here a little bit with another confession, ties and reminds us and anchors for us why this doctrine is so important to us, um, especially in the time of Reformation, but still for us today. The, the climax of the work of Christ in the Belgic Confession, the climax of our, the doctrine of our salvation before the, the teaching of the church is unpacked for us, reaches its climax in the intercession, the mediation of Christ. We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous. Think of that. God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden when they were fleeing from him in his sin. And they had access, right? They were able to hear the word of promise and trust in it so that the woman could be called the mother of all the living. But God couldn't extend that promise to them without the coming Christ. They had no access without a mediator. God appeared to Abraham, and yet Abraham had no access without a mediator. David had no access. Moses had no access Well, why was Moses going into that tent, his face glowing? Why was he beholding the face of God? Because of Christ. Because of his human nature. And so you see how the way chronologically this unfolds by promise and fulfillment, we might be tempted to say, well, God can save us apart from Jesus. The Jews certainly believe that, right? God can save us apart from the incarnation. But the scriptures taken as a whole lead us to this conclusion. We have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous. He therefore was made man. For this reason he was made man. Uniting together divine and human natures. So that we human beings might have access to the divine majesty. Otherwise we would have no access. You think he's trying to drive home a point here? Access, access, no access, access. But this mediator, whom the Father has appointed between himself and us, ought not to terrify us by his greatness. That was the problem of the medieval church. That's why, and that's what this article is so prominent. People look to saints. People look to celebrities. People look to other mediators. People look to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Calling her sinless. Lifting her up as a a co-redeemer. Elevating her into the divine pantheon. Because of, surely the mother of God will be sweet and listen to my request. Jesus, we're not so sure he's coming in judgment. Confession asks, who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies? The second benefit is justification. Now, the catechism doesn't use the language of justification it says he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived my conception is problematic it cursed cast me under the curse his conception is perfect 
Um, I call this uh, the blessing of justification because this is what Ursinus calls it in his commentary on the catechism. He says the mediation and the justification. This is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And this is why we read from Galatians 3 and 4. And I just want to close by reflecting briefly on this text. We were held captive under the law. We were conceived in sin. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The coming of faith, right, is tied to the incarnation. It's to the coming of Christ. In Christ, Paul says, you are all sons of God through faith. As Jesus was both a son of God and a son of man, so too we become sons of man. We become sons of God through his incarnation and death and resurrection. We are in Christ. We are heirs. We are baptized into Him. We put on Christ. And this is the background. That's why I started reading chapter 3 for that passage in chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The eternal son of God took on human flesh and was born under the law to fulfill the law. God established from Moses to Christ a legal regime where people who broke the law were liable to punishment. Hebrews says they lived in the fear of death. Literally, heaven forbid one of you broke the Sabbath today or or cursed. You could be stoned. You could die. Christ has lifted that curse to redeem us from the law. That law was established so that a true Israelite, a true son of man, could be born under it and fulfill it perfectly. And that is what Jesus did. Perfectly man, perfect God, fully man, fully God. And we are, through faith in Christ, adopted as sons and heirs. Let's pray. Merciful God, may we be quick to flee to Christ in faith. May we be quick to trust this mediator, to be confident of his love. May we be quick to confess our sins and repent, knowing that you will be merciful, that you will forgive, that you will bless. We thank you. That our brother, our elder brother, is in heaven. A sure anchor. A first fruit. True hope and the substance of our faith. We behold in him our own resurrection and glorification. And we rejoice, we joy to sing his praise. In Christ's name, amen.